coming up, new BMW 420i plus critical fat cave upgrade. <laughs> and I'm going to try my hardest to save you, I don't know, 10 or 15 grand. Details next. John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Website for that, obviously, or you can just click the card that's on screen now. Let's do this. This report is aimed squarely at you if you are considering buying a BMW 420i or perhaps equivocating between the 420 and the 430. I'd already spent a week driving the 430i and I spent a week driving the 420i compiling this report. And frankly, as with most base model vehicles I've ever tested, I really wanted to detest this one for being underpowered and generally nasty on the standard equipment front because that's how base models typically roll. I therefore wanted to be able to tell you that this was just a cynical delivery system for the BMW badge and not all that much else. I even wondered why BMW would suggest that someone such as me should drive a car such as this. Like, dude, don't they know who I am? And I failed. Like, I failed dismally to hate this vehicle. Instead, I am compelled to tell you that it's actually a very nice car provided you are the right potential owner, and we'll get to that. It's not especially ideal if you are some kind of driving dynamics nutcase or all-round performance pervert, but not everyone is. So in this report, I'm going to focus on who this car is right for. I'm not going to spend so much time telling you that it's got a distinctive snout, mainly because you've got eyes and presumably you've been to Specsavers and Beauty versus beasthood is such a subjective determination in any case. Like, just look around. I've done a detailed report on the 430 as well, and I will link to that sort of, you know, up there. Bear in mind that the 420 and the 430 have essentially the same engine, like it's the same hardware. BMW has simply put some kind of electronic gag on the 420 because the 430 is like, 15 grand more, and people who drop 15k extra on a car generally expect it to go about 15,000 bucks better. The 420 and 430 are both 2 litre turbo petrol engines that drink 95 Ron petrol, that's gasoline, America, and powering the rear wheels via an 8 speed auto, okay? If you drop about $45,000 more over and above the 75 k you'll probably pay to drive away in a fairly standard 420, you'll get into the 440i xDrive, and that is a properly special driver's car. xDrive is, of course, BMW code for all-wheel drive, and the 440 comes with a turbo inline-six displacing... 3 litres, so 50% more cylinders and 50% more capacity. And you need to feed it 98 Ron, which you can friggin' afford because you've just dropped, I don't know, 120 grand or something on a car. So stop bitching about the price of petrol, for Christ's sake, dude. In real terms, if you spend 15 grand more, you get about 
33% more performance out of the 430. So that's if you go from the 420 to the 430. And that would be at normal driving revs, okay? And if you spend 45 grand more, you get more than double the performance and twice as many tires pumping tractive effort to your next speeding fine. That's in the 440, okay? That's kind of how the range rolls. Now, a lot of reviewers are going to tell you that the 420i is kind of undercooked on performance, to which I would retort, most reviewers are proper performance perverts. They're not doing this job for the good pay, right? And I am one of those perverts, but I've learned enough to know that it's good to try to see cars from the perspective of the well-adjusted non-pervert in cases such as this, because that's who it's aimed at, okay? Performance perversion is, of course, a character flaw, and it is great fun scaring the kiddies, though. I admit it. Certainly, if you hop out of a 440i after driving its tits off and jump immediately into a 420i, it is going to feel substantially slower. But I have to say, a fully loaded Mazda 3 Astina with the 2.5-litre Atmo engine, which is widely regarded as a great, engaging, mainstream car to drive, it's slightly slower than a 420i in a straight line at normal driving revs. And yeah, if you rev its tits off, the Mazda is slightly faster. So what I'm saying here is context, dude. They're close. Line ball overall, the two of them. In performance terms, not in all other terms, right? I'm not making a direct comparison of the vehicles in toto, okay? In the real world, the 420i is actually fine. Like, it's better than fine if your main focus with a car is luxury and refinement because it's both of those things in spades, luxurious and refined. And it's got the look. Like, the world will see that you have stepped up from a Toyota or a Mazda or something of that nature if that's the kind of thing that matters to you. And it matters to so many people. Right? The 420i is quiet, it's got a decent boot, it's fuel efficient, it's got crisp handling, it's got great ergonomics, and okay, on that front, the steering wheel is a bit of a grip challenge, like it's chunky. Many people are going to sit in it for the first time and go, hmm, that's a bit big. But if that's your main ergonomic criticism of a car, face facts, they've knocked it out of the park in every other respect, haven't they? The 420 has an M Sport body kit, which looks good, and it kind of makes you feel like you're part of the club, even though a proper M car, and I did spend three glorious weeks in those in 2021, right? Tiffany on wheels, essentially. Like, a proper M car is a dominatrix who's dead keen to whip you mercilessly into submission for any transgression including not trying hard enough, which is generally the case behind the wheel of an M car, unless you're friggin' Mark Webber or something. Some reviewers will say that the 420 is an example of form over function. That's a pretty common criticism as well, but I would say that that depends on how narrow your definition of function really is. If function includes things such as refinement, luxury features and good handling and high levels of safety, then there's plenty of function within this car. 
those kinds of comments from reviewers, which you will hear over and over if you are seriously in the market and inflicting endless reviews upon yourself, are pretty narrow in my estimation. The infotainment system is awesome. And frankly, I've formed the view that most carmaker infotainment systems are properly hideous. Like if everyone at Google went on a four month LSD bender, the next generation of Android Auto would still be substantially better than most carmaker infotainment GUIs out there. This one is pretty slick. And the instrument cluster is different, but I'd suggest it's good different, not hideous different. It's awesome projecting the GPS between the Speedo and the Taco, like that is so helpful. And it's also very useful counterintuitively having your music playlist projected up on the head-up display. It makes it so easy to skip Celine Dion without taking your eyes off the road. And this is of course great advice for life right there. Always skip Celine Dion, but keep your eyes on the road, dude. The instrument cluster and the infotainment are going to require a period of accommodation from you, okay? As will the transmission shifter if you've never driven a BMW. But these features are all excellent once you are used to them. Different can be better, but you kind of have to spend the time and make friends with it. Proving perhaps that first impressions are not always right when it comes at least to test driving a car. And thank the Lord in a parallel universe perhaps, but thank him anyway that BMW's interior designers have seen fit to implement textured aluminium on some of the high wear interior surfaces, for example, in the center console area and elsewhere. And thus they have avoided cursing this car with endless frigging piano black, which looks so good on the showroom floor, but gets scratched to the shit house. Hashtag Australia. That happens the second you just look at it the wrong way. Like three or four weeks into it, it looks terrible. So props to them for thinking about things like that. Take note of those buttons marked one to eight beneath the heating, air conditioning and ventilation controls. These are not just radio presets, which it would be easy to mistake them for. They're actually fully customizable buttons. You can program them to be just about any configurable setting. It can be a navigation setting, an infotainment setting, whatever. Like, take me to John Wick's gunsmith on button one via my favourite massage therapist on button two, and let's pump out all of Marilyn Manson's fattest fat beats on button three. And let us avoid any vegan restaurants en route via button four. That's a perfect day out right there, in my view. It's configurable by way of menu deep dive. Like any one of those buttons can be set to whatever your four chambered thoracic pump desires, dude. And if that kind of thing is a bit hard for you, perhaps because you're a, well, I don't know, politician or some vitally important human resources manager or even a car company CEO or similar, then just darken the dealer's door, dude, and get them to sort it out because that's what they're there for. Ultimately, the core question here is, who is the 420i actually right for? And are you close enough to being that hypothetical candidate? If you want the cachet of the brand and the dare to be different snout, plus more than adequate levels of luxury and refinement, 
then in my book, 75 grand is actually a pretty decent exchange for what you get in a 420i. And it's gonna be good enough in a straight line, plus better than that in terms of its ride and its handling. And here's the bit where I save you 10 to 15 grand, as promised at the outset. The performance of the 420i is adequate. It's actually up the good end of adequate, like the sprightly end. There's a disconnect between the reviewer and the reviewee in most cases here because performance pervert, right? And you're not one. Nobody is ever going to jump into your 420i and opine, what a gutless shit heap. It's not going to work like that. Like someone might say, well, this is not nearly as fast as my M4. To which you might retort, yes, quite, my former friend. But my tyres don't cost me two grand a corner, dude. And you did pay $120,000 more for your M4 up front. So there's that. The 420i is good, right? It's just not a performance pervert satisfier. So if all you want is a really nice car that drives well with a premium badge and distinctive looks one way or the other, then this is kind of right for you, or at least it's a strong candidate. And the 430, therefore, is going to be 15 grand extra in engine overkill, which is money that you really don't need to spend or which you could devote to something else. Personally, I would spend it, but performance pervert, guilty, your worship. Frankly, you'd be better off dropping the 15 grand on any of the numerous options that attend the 420i and every other premium car purchasing experience. And these are endless, right, these options, right down to things like the laser headlamps that use actual lasers. Yes, I want that. So you kind of have to brace for impact against the assault of that if this is your first premium purchase rodeo in the car domain. And you got to bear in mind that face-to-face -face at the dealership, the conversation is going to go kind of like this, right? They're going to say, we might have this particular 420i in stock or that particular one on a boat. And it's got, I don't know, the dolphin leather option and the plutonium accents on the instruments, the saxophone holder on the roof and the lingerie chiller in the glove box. Yes. And then they're going to try to slot you into that and figure out what the discount is gonna be. Like the conversation devolves in this general direction. But not every would-be saxophonist actually needs a lingerie chiller, obviously. It's just one of those nice-to-have features and you have to decide how badly you want that. So if you can live with this car's Roxanne-inspired snout, which is absolutely a love-hate thing, it's kind of binary, and maybe you're working to a budget for your particular salary packaging limit, maybe you need a nice car to stick a client into in the front from time to time, then this car will not disappoint, right? The back seat is obviously kind of cramped. It's a bit of a no-go zone, but excellent for the mother-in-law like dude she will never want to ride with you again once will be enough yes please let me be a bitch momentarily however there's no standard adaptive cruise control in this car 
nor I think on the 430i. And I did just cross check that on redbook.com.au. It's actually not until you buy the 440i xDrive that you get adaptive cruise control standard. And to me, this is a glaring omission in 2021-22, considering the overall utility of that particular feature and its proliferation in mainstream cars, costing well under half the cost of a 420i. To me, the omission of that is a dead set shame. But if a car to you is about the cachet, the look, the luxury, whatever, the 420i is definitely going to be a contender. And of course, one of the other things about BMW ownership, which I should mention, is that here in Australia, at least in my experience, BMW does a significantly better job looking after the owners who have legitimate problems with their cars in service. I don't actually get all that many BMW complaints, but the few I do get, like whenever I've reached out and contacted BMW on behalf of an owner whose complaints seemed legitimate, that frown has quickly gone upside down. And the same, sadly, cannot be said of glorified Volkswagen or obviously three-prong. And I don't know why, because this would be so easy for the other two to fix. My presumption of it is that it's a cultural thing inside those organisations and their heads are buried in the sand on it. Or maybe they're aware and they just know they can get away with it because gravitational pull of those two brands for enthusiasts. That's it for the 420i. Anyway, it's objectively a good car, but you have to be the right kind of user to be right for it. Now, let us upgrade the mighty fat cave, and this hopefully will be yet another triumph for ghetto engineering. <laughs> or perhaps I will die in the attempt That'd be an even better story. And imagine the New Year's Eve parties at Volkswagen, Jeep, Ford, and of course, Three Prong. And then Josh would get what he's always wanted in 2022. Finally, to be regarded as the most hated motoring journalist in all of Shitsville. The obvious point to be made here is that your fat cave, my fat cave, it's not something you finish. It's a process, right? So you're always tweaking something in your fat cave and you shouldn't think of it in terms of getting to the end and getting it right and giving yourself two thumbs up because you'll never get there. It's just something that you refine and refine and refine based on what you do in your particular fat cave. And my fat cave is, it's not unlike your fat cave. Like my fat cave is partly a gym and it's partly a workshop. In fact, it's mostly a workshop and then a little bit of it is devoted to video production studio just over there, right? It's the bit where I do all the pieces to camera and stuff like that. And I can set up other shots around here as required, depending on what's going on, right? But what I've got to work on today is an aspect of the gym part of the fat cave, right? That's because I've got these two big steel beams in the ceiling, which are holding the floor up in stately Chateau Shitsville, and I've been hanging my punching bag from them in the shittest possible way by using the girder trolley that's supposed to be there for my chain block so that I can lift heavy shit out of the back of the ute without hurting myself, okay? And I did that the other day. I brought this big fat bandsaw home, and it worked just awesome for that. But to use the chain block, I've got to take the punching bag off it 
and I've got to put the chain block on it. And then when I want to work out using the punching bag, which is better than a thousand therapists, frankly, when I want to do that, I've got to take the chain block off and put the punching bag on. And then it doesn't function very well anyway, because even if you screw the bottom of the punching bag down, the top of it slides backwards and forwards on the beam and it's noisy for the chicks upstairs. The Tiffany's upstairs hate that. So we've got to fix that and we're going to use a purpose-built piece of equipment that is safe, practical and piece of piss for clamping anything to a beam. So if you've got a beam in your life and you want to clamp something to it, use one of them, dude. It's a girder clamp. It's a purpose-built girder clamp and it fits a whole range of girders overhead and it's so simple that even Scott Morrison could use it, right? It really is. So let us unbox like it's 1999. Yes! Hashtag misspent youth. And don't send me some email telling me that it's illegal to have a knife that does that in Australia. It's not, dude. It's not a flick knife. It's not a gravity knife. I'm just doing this and that a bit quickly because misspent youth. And then neuroplasticity, just learn to do it with both hands, dude. Try that, you right-handed types. Try putting it in your left hand, doing that equally proficiently. Bet you can't. There's just something really clever and really nice about using the right tool for the job. And obviously this is purpose designed to clamp onto the flange of a beam. There's a couple of big no-nos with beams, right? You should absolutely never drill a hole in the flange unless you know exactly what you're doing because the flange is carrying a great deal of either tensile load, that would be the bottom flange, or compressive load, which would be the top flange. So don't mess with that. Don't weld there either because the heat affected zone of the weld can make a big difference to the load carrying ability of the beam. And if you don't know about beam design, you really can't pick where it's safe to weld and where it's not. So a clamp like this is like a non-destructive addition that can't really impact the structural performance of the beam, which makes it so brilliant for the job. And these are kind of universal. They go from 75 mil to 230, which is like three inches to nine and a quarter in the old bananas, all right? So it fits a, the vast majority of beams that you would see in a domestic sort of construction application. And if you're wondering about how much load the beam over your head in your fat cave can withstand, just look at it like this, okay? It's been designed according to some building code and its function is to hold up whatever is above it. And part of what's above it is gonna be a whole bunch of people who could potentially be standing on the floor nearby. So let's just say it's you and nine Tiffany's upstairs, liberally applying SPF 15 plus because, you know, better to be safe than sorry, right? If there's nine of you, Tiffany doesn't weigh very much typically, except, you know, upstairs, and that's likely to be five, 600 kilos, something like that. So five or 600 kilos is probably a reasonably safe load for a beam in a standard sort of fat cave. And 
obviously I'm just winging that and I don't typically carry anything like that. I, I last used my uh, chain block to erect the big drill press that you might have seen in a couple of previous videos and I think it's all up weight, it's 165 kilos and I really just needed it to put the whole drive unit on top of the column and I guess the drive unit weighs about 60, 70 kilos, something like that. And it worked really well for that but in the context of a beam that's over your head in a fat cave that has been actually engineered to some building standard, then loads like that are going to be just fine. And of course we need to talk about going four metres up in a ladder because, you know, COVID-19 ripping through society once again, the last place on earth that you want to end up is in hospital, right? Particularly now, like ever, but particularly now. So let's talk about countermeasures to injuring yourself getting up a friggin' ladder in your fat cave. So the obvious place to start with ladders is to say that any time you get up one, you are at risk of falling and falls are really bad. Like accidental falls are a major cause of death and disability in Australia and you're going to put yourself at risk by going up a ladder and there's a few really simple rules okay so the first one is that you've got to get the angle of the ladder right and that should be 75 degrees which is like 15 degrees off the vertical okay the only problem with this is that most people have no friggin idea what 75 degrees looks like when you just eyeballing a ladder, particularly a ladder like this, which is just going up to a beam, like it's not against a wall, it's just all free space over here, right, in there, just free space for six metres or something, right, so what is 75 degrees and how can you measure it? So the first way to do that is to just stand upright at the base of the ladder and reach your arm out like this, and if your arm is just kind of long enough to grab the rail, then you're at about 75 degrees, okay? And the other way to look at it is it's one in four, okay? So for every four metres you go up, the base of the ladder should be one metre out from the wall. Every two metres, it should be half a metre, like that, okay? So if you've got a two metre high ladder, it should be like half a metre out from the wall. A four metre high ladder, it should be like one metre out from the wall. And the other obvious thing is that the manufacturers of ladders, they understand this. So guess what? When you get the angle right, the treads are level. So all you need to do is put your level on it and dude if the bubble's in the middle then you've got the angle right and obviously this is a hedge against the two major ladder disasters which are if it's too steep and you lean back then the ladder will fall backwards that's bad and if it's too shallow an angle like this it'll slip down and that's kind of bad as well because either way if you're up there you're going to fall that distance and just to put this in perspective right my head's going to be 4.2 metres up and that essentially means that if I fall and I hit the ground, I'm going to hit the ground at about 30 k's an hour and that's enough to hurt you badly. Like imagine coming off a bike and coming to a dead stop at 30 k's an hour. You're going to get hurt. If you're conscious and you fall like that, your body's going to invoke, your brain will invoke some really deep environmental sort of evolutionary programming that you probably haven't used for years and you'll put your arm out or your leg will come out whatever and those things will get sacrificed so that your brain doesn't hit the ground 
with maximal impact, okay? This is pretty serious stuff. Like, it's even worse if you're unconscious while you're falling. And the obvious ways to be unconscious while you fall are electric shock or B, get an impact in your eye. Like you're up there working above your head or something and something you haven't seen flicks down and hits you hard in the eye. You can be instantly unconscious because your optic nerve is part of your central nervous system and an impact or a significant sort of trauma to your eye can render you instantly unconscious. Ask me how I know, right? I know because of the conversation that I had many years ago, decades ago now, with the ophthalmic surgeon who... Uh, save the sight in this eye, right? Because I woke up one day lying on the grassy ground at the foot of a ladder and I had no sensation of falling and I just had terrible pain in my eye. And I'd been up the ladder doing a little bit of tree lopping. And, and, and normally with chainsaws and things of that nature, I wear safety glasses, like religiously. And I just noticed a branch up there and I got up the ladder and I pulled it down and it came away unexpectedly and went... Speared me in the eye, wiped the top off my cornea, and the next thing I know is I woke up on the ground. And I said to the doc, while he was treating me one of the numerous friggin' times, while I lay there for three weeks with my head in a really tight bandage, thinking, kill me now, right? I said to the doc, I've got no memory of falling. And he said, ah, that's because your heart probably stopped. I went, blah, 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 blah. how does that work? And he goes, optic nerve, central nervous system, impact there, lights go out. I went, uh-huh. So having been there and done this once, you're kind of an idiot if you run the same experiment again. So two things when you get up a ladder, even if you don't think you need that. One, put your brain in a box in case you're unconscious when you fall. And two, wear safety specs because then optic nerve not so exposed to uh, being put the lights out and then rebooting on the way down to the ground because if you're unconscious, that programming will not run your arm will not go out, that impact energy will not be absorbed by lesser importance type things in your structure, you won't get that potentially life-saving protection and it can be really, really bad. But you also have to realise that if you're relying on these things as a primary defence when you go up a ladder, then you've kind of already failed because you should have a multi-layered protection system and the PPE should be like the last resort. It's kind of like a seatbelt, which, to which I would say better not crashing, yeah? It's much better not to crash. Yeah, the seatbelt can help, but better not to crash. Yeah, putting your brain in a box like a bicycle helmet is ideal for this kind of thing and wearing safety specs is perfect also, but Really, you've got to organise the ladder on firm ground, good quality ladder that's not damaged in any way, 75 degrees. And the other pro tip is if you've got to lean out here beyond the rail or out here beyond the rail, then just imagine your belt buckle, okay? You're not allowed to move your belt buckle outside the boundary of these two rails because then your centre of mass will remain within the uprights protecting you and you won't end up in this situation where you're out here and all of a sudden the ladder starts to slide down the wall because that's also bad. So anyway, without raving on too long about the safety aspect of doing this, I'm going to put my brain in a box, put my safety specs on, get this up here, clamp this on, put the punching bag together and dude, cue the montage.
because the other thing every good punching bag installation needs is a little bit of restraint down the bottom but you've got to be really careful to make it elastic otherwise you rip the ass out of your punching bag very quickly so bicycle tube and the biggest chain ever is the best solution I've been able to come up with and you've probably seen me use these bow shackles here if you're a four-wheel driver you'll know what they are right this is a tiny little one rated at one ton whereas that's a working load limit, right? Not a braking strain. The one upstairs, the big one I used, is a 4.7 tonne working load limit. Now, I've broken a bunch of those in a misspent youth in a testing laboratory, and the big ones, the 4.7 tonne ones, typically fail at about 35 tonnes. And the official advice for things like four-wheel drive recovery and activities of that nature, generally lifting in industry with cranes and stuff like that, is you don't tighten the shackle pins, right? Because when the load is applied, if there's any twisting, it can cinch them right up. So normally what you do is you go finger tight and then back off for lifting. But for applications like this, I like to tighten them right up. And uh, you saw me use these earlier. These are the cleverest sort of adjustable wrenches ever. I don't know if you've seen that before, but this is that German brand, Knipex. K-N-I-P-E-X, a lot of people call them Nipex, incorrectly, it's 1, 2, 3, Knipex. And uh, this is the pliers wrench, or the pliers wrench, mate. And they're really good. This tiny little 7.5 inches with a lot of blood flow unit will go up to 40 millimetres across the flats. And it's ideal for being out in the field, like for tightening up the shackles on the tow bar safety chains and just any other time when you've got one set of spanners like you know when you need the 14 and the 14 for each end of the bolt and the nut and the bolt and you've only got a 14 and it's a pain in the ass well this is like literally the swiss army knife of adjustable wrenches and the really clever thing i don't know if you can see that is that the jaws stay parallel and they're non-marking, which is absolutely brilliant. And the adjustment is a piece of cake. They've even got imperial and uh, metric measurements, one on each side. So the Germans typically think of everything when it comes to that. And the only problem with these is they're a bit expensive. It's a case of buy once and cry once, but you'll love them forever if you buy them. They're just an awesome bit of kit. I've got this and the 10 inch one as well. And it really is good when you're up a ladder or out in the field because it's a complete second set of hands. And if you've ever got to just manipulate something where you really don't want to mark it, these jaws being clean skins are a dead set advantage too in context, like in comparison to something like some channel lock pliers, right? So I'll put a link in the description if you're interested in these, but they are really good. Although I must warn you, they're not exactly cheap but you'll hang on to them forever because they're so friggin' awesome. Anyway, that's about all I've got for you today. I just wanted to mix up the car review and a bit of practical sort of, I don't know, inspiration in your own fat cave. And just remember, dude, like, fat cave is a process. You're never going to get there, but as long as you're on the road and making progress, I guess, hey... That's the main thing. And I should point out to you too that I'm actually talking to you right now, or recording this at least, on the 31st of December 2021. And I'd like to thank you sincerely if you've been a regular viewer of this channel for the year or for several years, because I really am humbled by that, that you would take your precious time and watch reports by me. I never thought 
my channel would get this big and I really do have to thank you. And if you participate in the comments, then that's awesome too. And I'd like to shout out in particular to those of you who spend your time commenting constructively because hey, the world's full of assholes and if you're constructing if you're constructing commently and commenting constructively, then you're not one of those. So anyway, thanks for being along on the ride so far, which will continue into 2022. And <laughs> you agree, that's shaping up to be fairly interesting already. All the best. Happy New Year.